It's nearly 12 o'clock and time for the KMXT Midday Report. Thank you for listening to KMXT on 100.1 FM. It is your public radio station broadcasting from beautiful downtown Kodiak, Alaska, where we have more or less fair skies. 57% humidity out at the airport right now where the winds have come down a bit. They have steady westerly winds at 10 gusting to 21 and 10 miles of visibility. The Weather Service is calling for sunny skies for the rest of the day, high near 38. Northwest winds to 35, should come down to 30 this afternoon, could gust as high as 50. Clear skies tonight with northwest winds to 25 and a low around 26. And sunny skies for tomorrow too, with a high near 37, northwest winds to 15, becoming light and westerly tomorrow afternoon. Clear skies on Friday night and mostly sunny skies on Saturday as well. Coming up on the Midday Report, federal safety investigators are calling for more restrictive regulation on flight seeing tours in the Ketchikan area. And the Aleutian Fiber Project has hit a snag. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Amy Held. The Senate has voted to pass a deal to avert a crippling nationwide rail stoppage. Now the bill heads to President Biden's desk for his signature. The chamber, however, defeated a measure requiring sick leave for workers, a huge sticking point for unions who have been threatening to strike. President Biden has acknowledged some glitches in his recent climate and energy law. NPR's Franco Ordonez reports he was responding to the French president voicing complaints from European leaders that some parts could hurt their economies. President Biden says he makes no apologies for the law that includes big investments to tackle climate change. But he says there are some tweaks that can be made to make it easier for European countries to participate. It was never intended when I wrote the legislation, never intended to exclude folks who were cooperating with us. That was not the intention. French President Emmanuel Macron is in Washington for the first state visit of the Biden administration. While the two leaders are celebrating their relationship and pledging greater cooperation on a series of global issues, Macron also raised concerns about made-in-America provisions that he called super-aggressive. Franco Ordonez, NPR News. Biden says he would speak with Russian President Vladimir Putin if he showed an interest in ending the war in Ukraine. That hasn't happened. He's inflicting incredible, incredible carnage on the civilian population of Ukraine, bombing nurseries, hospitals, children's homes. It's sick what he's doing. But the fact of the matter is, I have no immediate plans to contact Mr. Putin. As Russia targets Ukraine's power grid, the mayor in Kiev has asked residents to consider leaving the city for a time because of sustained outages during the coldest months. Pennsylvania's Department of State tells NPR it will accept the midterm election results that were certified by a county two days after the legal deadline. NPR's Hansi Lo Wong reports. Monday was a deadline for Pennsylvania counties that haven't received legally valid recount petitions to certify their election results. 
But Republicans on the Luzerne County Board of Elections voted against making those results official, and the board deadlocked along party lines when its fifth member, a Democrat, abstained from voting. A Democrat later voted to certify two days after the deadline. The delay had raised concerns about disenfranchising some 117,000 voters in Pennsylvania. A similar controversy has been brewing in Arizona's Cochise County, where two Republican officials refused to certify more than 47,000 people's votes by that state's deadline. Anzila Wong, NPR News. Biden's student loan program has been dealt another blow. The Supreme Court today says it will remain blocked till at least February when they have agreed to hear arguments. The forgiveness program includes up to $20,000 in loan relief for borrowers. This is NPR News. NPR News is brought to you in part by Providence Kodiak Island Counseling Center. For an appointment or more information, 481-2400. For KMXT in Kodiak, I'm Terry Haynes. Federal safety investigators are calling for new, more restrictive regulations on flight seeing tours in the Ketchikan area after a series of crashes. The National Transportation Safety Board says previous approaches focused on voluntary compliance and have proven ineffective at addressing the unique hazards of flying in the area. KRBD's Eric Stone reports. The agency's 20-page report calls on the Federal Aviation Administration to impose specific regulations for Ketchikan air tours above and beyond what's normally required. The NTSB says it's looking to prevent pilots from being caught in clouds unexpectedly without the equipment necessary to navigate them. Large commercial airliners carry specialized instruments that allow them to fly in low visibility conditions, but small flight-seeing planes typically operate under so-called visual flight rules. That is, they rely on what pilots can see out the window. The report highlights seven fatal flight scene crashes in the Ketchikan area since 2007 that killed a total of 31 people and injured another 13. Three of those crashes involved flying into poor weather conditions and crashing into terrain, including the most recent crash in Misty Fjords National Monument Wilderness last year. Those three crashes resulted in 20 deaths. Current regulations on air tours require visibility of at least two miles when clouds are less than 1,000 feet above the ground. Pilots must also fly at least 500 feet above ground level. But Ketchikan is more complex. NTSB Chair Jennifer Homedy said in a news release that the area's fast-changing weather and mountainous terrain present, quote, unique but well-understood safety hazards. The report asks the FAA to work with the National Weather Service to come up with more conservative weather standards for flight-seeing tours in Ketchikan and require specialized training. The board also asks the FAA to require air tour operators to comply with a 2009 agreement that standardizes tour routes, provides alternate flight paths on poor weather days, and encourages pilots to relay poor conditions. That agreement is voluntary, and even though the air carrier involved in last year's crash had signed on, the pilot was not following the designated route at the time of the crash, according to the NTSB. A ProPublica report last year highlighted that Alaska makes up a growing share of the country's crashes involving small commercial aircraft. The NTSB says specific regulations issued for other high-risk locales like the Grand Canyon and Hawaii have improved flight-seeing safety. The NTSB investigates crashes but doesn't have the power to issue binding rules. That's why it's calling on the FAA to impose new regulations. In a statement, the FAA said it takes the safety board's recommendations seriously and will respond within an appropriate time frame. The FAA said improving aviation safety in Alaska is one of its top priorities. 
The agency highlighted what it called a sweeping examination of safety issues in Alaska aviation conducted last year. That includes better weather data and forecasting, expanded satellite-based air traffic control coverage, improved navigation charts, and new GPS-guided routes that allow pilots to fly at lower altitudes to avoid dangerous ice buildup. The agency said it meets every spring with air tour operators to discuss lessons learned and recommendations and reminders ahead of the coming season. But the NTSB says those actions fall short of what's necessary to protect pilots and passengers. One Ketchikan aviation heavyweight, Taquan Air, offered support for stricter regulations. In a statement, Taquan executive Krista Hagen said the airline, quote, supports the concept of a rulemaking process as a focused effort to enhance safety. If the FAA decides to take action, Hagen said the airline would welcome the opportunity to actively participate in the rulemaking process. Other Ketchikan flight seeing operators said they were reviewing the NTSB's recommendations. Reporting in Ketchikan, I'm Eric Stone. The Aleutian Archipelago stretches 1,200 rugged miles across the North Pacific Ocean and Bering Sea. And like much of rural Alaska, fast and reliable internet in those far-flung island communities is either prohibitively expensive or unavailable altogether. So it was a big deal when GCI began constructing an underwater fiber-optic broadband cable connecting them to the mainland. But on Monday, in the Aleutian's biggest city, a mere three a mere mere weeks away from the launch date, the cable in Unalaska was damaged. KUCB's Theo Greenley has more. Telecommunications company GCI has spent two and a half years planning an underwater cable, promising to run high speed broadband down the Aleutian chain. And things were looking good. The eight hundred mile fiber optic project had just passed a huge milestone earlier this month when the company actually ran their first test and successfully brought connectivity to Unalaska. But on Monday, just weeks away from the official launch, something damaged the cable. We believe the likely cause is the anchor from uh, a passing vessel. That's GCI spokesperson Heather Handyside. Once our crews identified the damage, we immediately requested the deployment of our fiber splicing ship, and that's a fiber ship that is on standby in the lower 48, um, ready to respond to any incident like this where we require uh, subsea fiber repairs. Um, that ship is on its way. It's estimated to arrive in the next week and will immediately begin repairs on the damaged fiber. Handyside says GCI does not expect the damaged cable to delay the company's plans to turn on service by the end of the year. But you gotta wonder. Millions of pounds of fiber optic cable, 800 miles, two and a half years in the making, a feat of modern engineering just weeks away from completion, foisted by the anchor of a passing ship in Dutch Harbor, the nation's most productive fishing port. What's to say that won't happen again? Here's Handyside. Damage to subsea fiber or fiber breaks is a relatively rare incident, but it does happen. And that's why GCI pays um, and contracts out with a, fi a specialty fiber ship to be uh, available 24-7, 365 days a year to respond to incidents just like this. Um, I have, I've been working for GCI for about six years, and I cannot recall, I maybe recall one time that the ship was uh, called out to do a subsea fiber repair, and that was not due to an anchor. It was due to an undersea landslide. So if that gives you some 
perspective on how frequent these uh, fiber incidents occur. They, they are very rare. GCI has over 6,000 miles of subsea fiber between Alaska and the lower 48 and has operated those thousands of miles of cable for decades with almost no incidents. And Handyside says the company is working to educate the public, mariners and anyone who might work around the cable sites. Through outreach and education efforts, both at the local, state, national and international level, we belong to national and international associations who make it their business to share this kind of information, to prevent these kind of incidents, and we have a really strong track record of success. So I feel confident in the future as we continue to talk about this new fiber and as we continue to uh, increase awareness about it, just like all of the other fibers that we operate uh, subsea to the lower 48. GCI says the fiber project is still on track to deliver broadband internet to Unalaska sometime in December. Reporting in Unalaska, I'm Theo Greenlee. In 55 places around the United States, there's a unique congressional designation that supports and funds grant programs and preservation efforts which contribute to community enrichment. But the people behind these so-called national heritage areas experience constant uncertainty about the future of these federally funded sites. KDLL's Riley Board reports Alaska's only heritage area is pushing for a change. Most tourists and residents in south-central Alaska have benefited from the efforts of the Kenai Mountains Turnigan Arm Heritage Area, a federally created area that includes Girdwood, Cooper Landing, Hope, Moose Pass, and lots of national forest. National heritage areas like KMTA were created during the Reagan administration as a cost-effective way of promoting and preserving American cultural and historic resources. They're authorized and funded by Congress. And, unlike national parks, heritage areas are lived in and designed to drive economic development within their boundaries. KMTA runs educational programs, does trail maintenance, hosts events, and awards grants to community projects. And just a note, KDLL's Report for America position is one of those projects. Rachel Blakesley is the executive director of KMTA. It's the money that funds grant projects that supports communities and cultural preservation and historic preservation. But authorization from Congress expires, or sunsets, after 15 years. That means the country's 55 heritage areas are up for reauthorization at different times, creating more work for both Congress and heritage area staff. When their future status is unknown, Blakesley says heritage areas struggle to hire staff or plan events in the long term. For two years, a coalition of heritage areas across the country has been advocating for a congressional bill that will move all of the heritage areas to the same reauthorization cycle. So instead of having all these hodgepodge sunset dates where every few years there are heritage areas that have to go through massive Herculean advocacy effort to try to get their heritage areas reauthorized, this program bill would essentially put all of us on the same renewal date. The bill is on the Senate's calendar for this legislative session, but the session is coming to a close, and the clock is ticking. Just because a bill is on the docket doesn't mean the Senate will get to it. And if they don't, heritage areas will have to start all over again, 
when a new Congress comes in this January. Blakesley says that would be a disservice to the communities served by heritage areas. We have to start from ground zero, which is significant time, resources, manpower that's invested into this advocacy effort versus into the actual work that the National Heritage Areas are trying to do. KMTA is up for reauthorization in 2024. If the bill doesn't pass, there are other avenues they could pursue to get reauthorized, like through a member of the state's congressional delegation. Senator Lisa Murkowski did this for KMTA back before the program bill was created, and could do so again if it doesn't pass. On the Kenai Peninsula, I'm Riley Board. The Anchorage School District is considering increasing class sizes in order to close its massive budget gap. At a work session on Monday, district administrators outlined potential savings that could come with increasing the pupil-to-teacher ratio, which measures the number of students per staff member in a school. Increasing it by one across all grades would save the district $7 million and require 60 fewer teachers than the district needs to operate now. Increasing it by five would save the district $32 million and require 274 fewer teachers. Andy Ratliff is the district's budget director. It wouldn't mean necessarily 274 pink slips if you went that route, but um, it, would, it would definitely mean more kids in the classroom uh, and fewer teachers overall. Many teaching positions are already vacant. The district's hiring page currently lists 139 open teaching jobs. A few hundred teachers usually retire every year, too. But even if the district can avoid layoffs, Teachers Union President Corey Ace is still concerned. He says large class sizes negatively impact both teachers and students. In the higher grades, it's just that much harder to run science labs um, to support students in um, more challenging math classes and things like that. Uh, writing assignments. I'm not grading um, 25 students' essays. Now I have 35, 40 students. All those things take an impact um, on, on our educators, on time, and on student outcomes. AIST says class sizes are already bigger than teachers would like. In a recent survey conducted by the union, more than half of middle school teachers said they had 31 to 35 students in their classes. The board will continue discussing potential budget cuts at a work session on Saturday. Administrators must subsit, oh, Saturday, December 10th. Administrators must submit a balanced budget to the school board in February and to the Anchorage Assembly in March. Anchorage Mayor Dave Bronson has vetoed city funding to permanently increase capacity at the Brother Francis shelter. The nearly $1.2 million cut is among Bronson's largest vetoes to the city budget announced on Tuesday evening. The assembly had passed the budget last week in a 9-3 vote, and it totaled roughly $3.6 million more than Bronson had proposed. Midtown Anchorage Assembly member Felix Rivera says the Brother Francis Shelter, which is operated by Catholic Social Services, usually has a capacity of 75 people. Then in July, the Assembly gave it funding to operate at a surge capacity of 120. The funding vetoed by Bronson would have made the surge capacity permanent. Read Diverse, Read Indie on Insight Daily Radio. 
conversations with today's most influential authors from the world of independent publishing. The Lonely Assassin is the latest installment in the Milan thriller book series by master storyteller Jack Erickson. In the novel, a Russian banker embezzles millions, laundering money in Switzerland for Russian oligarchs, and then flees with his Italian wife to a remote location on Italy's Lake Como. Vladimir Putin orders an assassin to Milan to take out the banker, but unexpectedly, the assassin meets an intriguing Italian woman in Milan who probes into his emotional life. On a dangerous assignment, the assassin realizes he's in a deep personal crisis. We spoke with him about this latest exciting novel. When I get these ideas for either short fiction or, or, or thrillers or whatever, I'll have an idea, I'll have a scene, and I can visualize that scene, and I might write that scene. It might be chapter three, it might be chapter eight, but once I've written it, I know, oh, now I know what I have to do to go back to develop this character, to develop the setting, to come up with the conflict, because every good book has to have conflict. And every book also has to have what they call an arc. That is, the characters in the early part of the book, their lives will arc and change dramatically by the end of the book. So I think that's a powerful thing to do, is to show with a good book how characters change from the beginning of the book to the end. That's author Jack Erickson on his latest novel, The Lonely Assassin which is available online at bookstores and at Red Brick Press. Read Diverse, Read Indie is presented by the Independent Book Publishers Association. This is the Island Messenger, a look at personal messages, the weather, and community announcements. Good afternoon and welcome to Thursday. It is the first day of November. No, it is the first day of December, the year 2022. The sun rose today at 928. It will set again at 428. That will give us seven hours of precious daylight. A gain of a loss of two minutes and 50 seconds compared to yesterday. Our record low for this date was six degrees set in 1967 and in 1971. And our record high was 48 degrees, set in 1950. Much closer to the latter, at 38 degrees right now, with fair skies. West winds to 10 out at the airport, gusting to 21. They have 10 miles of visibility. Sunny skies for today and tomorrow. Mostly sunny skies for Saturday, too, with uh, mostly cloudy Saturday night and a 50% chance of rain on Sunday. Look for northwest winds, 235 Decreasing to 25 to 30 this afternoon, but could gust as high as 50 still today. Clear skies overnight with a low around 26, northwest winds to 25. And those sunny skies tomorrow will bring a high of 37, northwest winds to 15, becoming light and westerly tomorrow afternoon. Looking at our local tides, we have a low tide coming up here this afternoon at 241. That will happen here on the east side and be 2.9 feet followed by a high tide at 8.26 this evening of 6.5 feet. Over on the west side, your low tide will happen at 3.29 this afternoon and be 4.4 feet in Larson Bay, followed by a high tide at 9.01 this evening of 10.7 feet. 
Mariners, here's your forecast for Marmot Island to Sitkanak, Kodiak's east side offshore. Gale warning for today, northwest 40, seas to 15 feet. For tonight, north 25, except north 30, north of Dangerous Cape, seas to 11 feet. And for tomorrow, north 15, becoming southwest in the afternoon, seas to 6 feet. For Friday night, southwest 20, seas to 5 feet. Saturday, southwest 25, seas to 6 feet. And for Sunday, on our east side, south 35, seas to 12 feet. Over in the Shelikoff Strait, gale warning for today, northwest 40, diminishing to 30 this afternoon, but gusting to 55, um, coming down to 45 out of bays and passes along the Alaska Peninsula. Seas to 9 feet in the Shelikoff today. For tonight, north winds to 25 knots, diminishing to 15 knots after midnight. Seas to 5 feet tonight, subsiding to 3 feet after midnight. And for tomorrow in the Shelikoff, variable 10, seas to 3 feet. They also have the wind coming back up on Sunday to southeast 30, seas to 6 feet on Sunday. The Borough Assembly will be meeting today at 6.30 p.m. in the Assembly Chambers. And next Tuesday, December 6th, the Women's Bay Service Area Board will be meeting in the Women's Bay Fire Hall. That's at 5.30 p.m. The Assembly Work Session that was scheduled for December 8th has been canceled. The Kodiak City Council will hold a work session tonight. That's happening at 6.30 p.m. and will be followed immediately by a regular meeting. Both meetings are open to the public and will be held in the Kodiak Public Library. The meetings will be web-streamed, and the web-streaming link and meeting packets are available online at the City of Kodiak website. For more information, contact the City Clerk at 907 486 8636. The Humane Society of Kodiak's annual membership meeting is happening at 5.30 p.m. tonight. That's happening at room 106 in the Benny Benson building of Kodiak College. A recap of this year's accomplishments and plans for 2023 will be provided. Members and the public are welcome, and a Zoom option is available, too, for those not wanting to attend in person. Email them at humanesocietyofkodiak, all one word, at gmail.com. For more information, the Chiniac Christmas Market is happening on Saturday. That's going on from noon to 4 p.m. at the Chiniac Library. To get to the library, take a right on King Crab Way at mile 41 and a quarter. The road, the road will curve to the right, and the library is located on the left-hand side of the road. They're featuring arts and crafts, pottery, salves, preserves, baked goods, and more all handmade in Kodiak. Again, that's the Saturday, noon to 4 p.m. at the Chiniac Library. The Kodiak Hospital Auxiliary is inviting you to sponsor Angels of Love decorations on their trees. Place your loved one's name on an angel this holiday season and display their name on one of Providence Island, Kodiak Island Medical Center's holiday trees from November 19th through January 21st. Honor the life of someone you miss and celebrate the life of someone you love with a $10 donation for each angel. You can make the donations in person at the hospital admitting reception desk. Uh, you can mail them to Kodiak Hospital Auxiliary at 1915 East Rezanoff Drive in Kodiak. Or you can go to them online at the Kodiak Hospital Auxiliary website, which is at www.kodiakhospitalauxiliary.org. 
Kodiak Audubon's annual membership meeting and winter birds presentation is this no next Friday, December 9th, so a week from tomorrow. Bill Pyle will review the details of the Christmas bird count, and Robin Corcoran will present a slideshow with identification tips on the winter birds of Kodiak. The event will be held at Kodiak College in rooms 128 to through 130 of the Benny Benson Building. Join them at 6.30 p.m. a week from tomorrow to renew your membership and enjoy a slice of pizza and sign up for this year's Christmas bird count. The talk will begin at 7 p.m. It's a wonderful opportunity to sharpen your skills for the 2020 count. This year's count will be held in town Sunday, December 18th and at Narrow Cape Saturday, December 31st. Well, it's coming up, the Isle Bells 12th Annual Holiday Bells Concert. That will be happening Sunday, December 11th at 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. at the Gerald C. Wilson Auditorium. It's featuring guest performances by the Alpha Singers. For more information, go to the Kodiak Arts Council website. St. James the Fisherman's Church's holiday annual holiday miniature quilt sale and bake sale is happening December 10th. That's happening from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Enter your miniature quilts for show or sale. Quilt dimensions should be close to 20 by 20 or smaller. That's inches. Prize for best in show. Quilters may be en- may enter up to five miniature quilts per entry, per entry fee, which is $10. Show participants may donate 5% of their sale proceeds to benefit St. James Church if they'd like. And your quilt entry deadline is December 9th. To enter, contact Ellen Lester at 942-3868. And entry forms can be emailed to you for your convenience. And don't forget, courtesy of Matson, it's free Alutic Museum admission all month this month through December 23rd. Thank you, Matson. Listen for the Island Messenger here on Public Radio KMXT three times a day, Monday through Friday at 9 a.m., during the midday report at 12.20, and in the evening at 7 o'clock. If you have a community announcement or personal message, including lost and found items or pets, you can call KMXT at 486-3181, fax us at 486-2733, or email psa at kmxt.org. 